Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Partner Over Observer, where we study the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he tells Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For more information and resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. On the morning of December 31st, 2000, I watched a white cardboard coffin travel up a conveyor belt into the belly of a Boeing 757 along with the other baggage. The body in that coffin had belonged to my son, but he had gambled with it once too often. This is the opening lines of Jack Deere's autobiography called Even in Our Darkness. Jack Deere is a prominent theologian, worked at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary for a stint and went on to work with John Wimber throughout the height of the charismatic renewal. And Jack Deere is brilliant, and he's actually quite a biblical scholar. But as he writes his autobiography, it's filled with deep valleys. I think I've told you before that my friends weren't big fans of his book, Even in Our Darkness. They said it was dark. And the redemptive part of his life, you know, when you tell your life story, there's usually a redemptive part where God turned it around. They said the redemptive part was a little weak. I thought it was honest, and I appreciated it. And sorrow is an honest facet of life after all. I'm not a fan of the idea that the Christian life is supposed to be light and airy. And, and I don't believe that, that what's promised to us in Scripture is that as we follow Jesus, we'll be privy of a life that's void of any real pain or sorrow. Joy, hope, peace, these are promised to the Christian but joy, hope, and peace are not inconsistent with pain and sorrow. Spafford was that hymn, that hymn writer who wrote, uh, It is well with my soul. He had lost his son in a fire. And at, on, as his family was trying to grieve the fact that the, his only son was lost in a fire, he sent his wife and four daughters on vacation to help them mourn. They were part of a shipwreck in which all four of his daughters drowned and his wife was the only one to survive. And his wife was in England and she wrote to him and so he got on a boat to meet his wife. Now his son has died and all four of his daughters. And as he passed the spot in the ocean where the shipwreck happened, where his four daughters uh, lay to rest, the, the captain of the ship stopped and pointed it out to the man so that he could have a moment. And as he stood there in the spot in the ocean where his four daughters had drowned, he penned these lines. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. If love is the chief, chief ethic of the Christian faith, then those who belong to the Christian faith will know pain and sorrow because whom they love exist in a broken and fallen world. You love children who exist in a fallen world, and they are not privy or exempt from being touched by it. It's perfectly consistent. It is perfectly consistent to stand at the graveside of an individual who you really love and to feel peace, to feel confident that God holds all things in his hand, to feel hope that you will see them again. To feel joy and gratitude for the days that you spent with them. And to feel pain and loss and sorrow. It's perfectly consistent. 
The kind of pain you feel as you stand at the graveside of someone who you've really loved is a celebration of genuine love for someone other than yourself, which is profoundly godly. That you could feel love for someone other than you is profoundly godly. And if you think that the Christian faith is about you feeling light and airy all the time, you've got to think deeper and love harder. A heart gripped with love for a world ate up by the fruit of selfishness, sin, and death will groan in prayer. No tears as they cry out to God. If the church is tearless in prayer, it's because she has not loved well enough to feel the pain and the sorrow of the heart of the Father. A heart that's cold and hard may be able to live light and airy as they forget about their neighbors headed for hell without the gospel but a heart that's ate up with real love for a fallen world will feel sorrow and pain and a burden to pray. Anyway, Jack Deere processed in the book the pain of having a son who committed suicide after years of suffering with addiction issues. He used drugs for the first time in a church parking lot while his dad and mom were in in service. He was sexually abused by a church youth leader And although he had seasons of breakthrough where it felt like God got a hold of him, he habitually wrestled with addiction and all of the baggage that comes with it. But all of these issues, all the rebellion and the deceit, it didn't make Jack Deere love his son any less. It maybe only drew Jack Deere's love for his son out into the light. They caused his father's heart to break for his son. They brought him to a place of desperate action. His father found rehabs. He pleaded. He prayed. He believed. And he, and, and, and his son seemed to be on an upswing as he came home for Christmas one year. Later, they found out that two nights before he passed, he had driven his truck over a frozen lake and sat there waiting to see if the ice would break. And the night that he passed, he played Russian roulette with his father's handgun and his family home. And I laid in bed with tears. The first time I read this, and maybe the second time too, as I thought about the pain that his father had known. Jack and his wife were left trying to pick up the pieces as their baby lay in the grave with heartache and sorrow. And I thought, really loving is risky. Love always brings the risk of sorrow. You can love your spouse well, love them deeply, and you're setting yourself up for real pain. One day their shell of a body will give out And you'll be left alone. Your only hope is to die first, which is exactly what I intend to do. (laughs) And I was telling Haley recently that if something happened to one of my babies, I have three girls and a boy on the way. Praise God, the boy's coming. I'm going to have currently. (laughs) Hallelujah. uh, I currently have three little girls. The oldest will be six this month, and the middle is, will be four, and the youngest will be two this year. So she's a year and a half or something. <laughs> you know, everybody keeps tracking months. Who can keep tracking months? Who does that? I was telling Haley, I really love those girls and their bouts of emotionalism. We had a week with emotionalism, tears, all the hair pulling. I really am crazy about them, and my love for them makes me vulnerable. 
And if they decided not to walk with Jesus one day, it would break me. And that's the risk you run when you choose to really love. You run the risk of sorrow and frustration. If you never want to feel pain, you just go ahead and grow hard and cold and live alone and go to bed early and miss all the late nights of laughter and storytelling. Wear a facade and pretend like you've got it all together and use people to get where you want and what you want. If you never want to feel pain, let your heart get hard. God is love, the Apostle John wrote. And because God is love, he cannot by nature watch his creation head towards hell without experiencing sorrow, pain, and frustration. God really loves us. He loves your wayward kids even more than you love your wayward kids. And when Jack Deere's son went astray, his love for his son caused him to thrust his life into action. The crisis of his son drew his love for him out into the light. And when your child hurts, your love for them forces you into action. I always played sports growing up and admittedly I'm a bit of a baby when it comes to heat. I don't like the heat, yo. And it was August in Florida And I was in full football pads playing both sides of the ball, offense and defense. And I was hot and starting to get nauseous, man. And I remember, I don't know, I was probably eight or nine. At one point, I looked up at the referee after a while and I said, I think I'm going to pass out. And he said something to the sideline. And I have a vivid memory of watching my five, six stepdad hop a chain leak fence surrounding the field and run faster than any grown man should ever run. And he had me strip down my helmet and my pads and you know how little boys, you wear these little undershirts cut off here too. I had my undershirt cut off. And I was embarrassed because all those cheerleaders were now looking at my chunky little body. <laughs> but love demands action. Love causes you to throw off all restraint. Any sense of dignity. Watch my little five, six stepdad hop a fence and run on the field in front of everybody. You lose your sense of dignity. God's love for creation spurs him to act. He does not sit idle. As he watches sin and hell and death ravage creation, humanity, it actually draws the love of God out into the open. It draws the love of God into action. Our rebellion, our moral decay, our sin and shame drew the love of God out into the light. Paul would later write that the love of God compels him, constrains him. The ESV translated that word, the love of God controls me. Meaning that the the translators struggle there because the word doesn't just mean compel, but it means to compel in a certain direction. And so the ESV chose the word controls because it doesn't just thrust me forward, but it thrusts me down a particular path in a particular direction. And so the Apostle Paul wrote that the love of God controls me. It thrusts me forward down a particular path towards a particular action. I am controlled by the love of God causes me to stay on task. The love of God motivates me. Paul writes, I'm motivated by, constrained by, inspired by the love of God to minister the gospel to the nations. Now, God is not emotional. He does not have swings of emotions. 
that rule his temperament. But because God is love, by consequence, God does experience emotion. Jesus looks over Jerusalem in Luke 19, and he weeps for her. And the Old Testament, particularly in the New Testament as well, tell the story of the heart of God towards humanity. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of man and the thoughts of his heart were on evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Our evil grieved God down to his core, down to his heart. At times, God is greatly pleased. In Genesis 5, he walks with Enoch and catches him up, the scriptures say. Enoch never died. He was caught up in the glory of God. God's heart was so pleased with him. As Jesus is baptized and on other occasions, God says over Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I am satisfied. Remember, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute and keep pursuing that prostitute even when she's unfaithful. And God says, this is a picture of my relationship with Israel. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. God says, this is a picture of my steadfast, consistent, unwavering love towards Israel. Hosea, you go love a prostitute who keeps walking out on you. In my younger years, I love to preach from Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, we have what's called the seven woes. I love, I've always loved good, hard preaching. And I always wanted you to tell me the truth and tell it to me straight. And as I was preaching these passages... It never dawned on me that to preach the passages where it says that God loves us with an inexpressible love, that God's love, uh, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of it is unmeasurable. It never dawned on me that those passages are equally as true. I just like to preach the hard ones. I love Matthew twenty three fifteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I like to preach that because especially because Jesus called them children of hell. Matthew 23, 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may be clean. I loved Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. And I love to draw out the frustration of Jesus' tone. And rightfully so, Jesus is frustrated. God is frustrated, I would say. But I don't think I ever followed through or taught the conclusion of Jesus' thought. He will say in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were unwilling. Here Jesus, who is the exact expression of the Father, says, I, 
I, I look upon you, Jerusalem, frustrated. You're whitewashed tombs. You are concerned with outwardly being pure, but inside you're dead men's bones. I look on you and I'm frustrated. And then on the other side, he says, but how long I've longed to gather you together. There's something compassionate, paternal about Jesus' words. I long to gather you. And until you understand the love of a father for his wayward son, the pain he feels, the deep longing for restoration, the ache in the heart of a father to see his son whole and fulfilled and alive, until you get there where you really understand the hurt of the father towards creation, you cannot understand the gospel nor the role of the church. The mission of God begins in the grieved heart of God. And if you can't empathize with the grieved heart of the Father, you'll never grasp the mission. The gospel of Jesus is the love of God drawn out into the light. The same way that a father who has a wayward son, an addicted son, his love draws him to find rehabs, to rebuke his son, to plead with his son, to reason, to seek counsel and advice. The same way that when your kid goes astray, your love causes you to action. The gospel is the action of the father towards creation, man. It is the action of God towards creation. It is the solution of God. And to partner in the mission of the Father towards humanity, you will have to empathize with His sorrow. You'll have to love humanity enough to feel the pain of God as He looks on her and allow the grieving heart of God to motivate you to participate in His plan of redemption. You will not feel light and airy all the times in your Christian walk. You ought to lay on the ground burdened in prayer with tears in your eyes, desperate to see your community come to know Jesus because the heart of God is grieved. Feel sorrow. Now, let's get to our passages. If you're just joining us, forgive me, because I'm starting in a big line of logic. But we've been studying Matthew 16, 18. I'll read you that first, and then we'll touch our secondary text from Matthew 20, verse 19 through 22. And we're talking about the church. We're talking about the idea that, that Jesus intends to build a church who will partner with him in bringing the gospel to the nations. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, here are the words of our Savior. And I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. John chapter 20, verse 19 through 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed onto them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, Jesus says to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We started this discussion weeks ago now by discussing that throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, his intent was to build a church. He discipled, he taught, 
We discussed that Jesus' first plan to build a church after his ascension was not us, but was the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the primary church builder. Even today, as Jesus says to the disciples, I send you as the Father sends me, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. We do nothing without the power, the strength, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the first builder of the church. Remember that Jesus is not about outward reform. We just read that from Matthew 23. The whole thing was to say that the Pharisees only cared about the outward appearance. He's about inward transformation. And we cannot inwardly transform anyone without the power and the leading of the Holy Ghost. Jesus is about hearts of stone becoming hearts of flesh. Dead men being born again. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes those things to happen. We also talked about the fact that Jesus, because he's about inward transformation, does not establish a political party or a political kingdom firstly. He first establishes a a, a church who will deal with the spiritual nature of man. And so and so when we talked about the fact that in our culture we have abortion issues, we have fatherless home issues, we have issues of of hatred and and, and the, the, the solution to those issues is not first and primarily a political party. Yes, remember we said you need to vote. Yes, you need to vote conscience. But don't don't vote and say my solution is a man in a political party and neglect the fact that the, the, the issue to fatherlessness is a healthy, strong local church that disciples people and teaches kids who had no fathers what it means to be a father. Remember, we talked about the fact that our abortion laws need to be changed. But changing a law does not change the inner man. We need hearts to be changed. We need hearts to be restored. We need to, in our hearts, realize that all life is valuable. And every man or woman, boy or girl, whether disabled or with any handicap, is created in the perfect image of God. And the real issue, although we need a law to be changed, the real issue is that we don't love people. The real issue is that we don't see value in humanity. God's solution to that problem is the church, a strong church. It's our job to release the heart of God to the nations, bring the healing of Jesus to the nations, to proclaim the gospel to the nations. So now, our secondary text this morning, primarily we're going to focus on Jesus' words when he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Our text today from John 20 is post-resurrection. So Jesus has died and he now is resurrected. The disciples, fearful of persecution, they were locked in a room together praying. They locked the doors, the scriptures say, because they were worried about the Jews coming to persecute them. Now Jesus comes and stands in the midst, assumingly walking through the walls, and says, peace to you. And the disciples think, I would have a lot more peace if you would have used the door like a normal person. Because now we're a little bit freaked out. And the disciples show Jesus his hands. Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side, the wounds from his crucifixion still visible. And Jesus says, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. First, as the father, the mission of God that you are called to take part in originates in the heart of the father. He is the original sender. Our participation in this work flows from the heart of God. Consider the Father's role in all of this. Adam and Eve betray him. And rather than striking them down immediately with his holy wrath, he clothes them, makes a promise to them of future redemption. 
He plots. The father causes a great flood to wipe out the evil of humanity, but he shows compassion to Noah and his family. They will be a righteous remnant. And then God will make a covenant with Abram, promising to bless his son Isaac and by consequence his son Jacob. And as we follow the narrative and stumble into the story of Abraham headed to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, his son, his son of promise, We're left confused and empathetic. God has finally called Sarah to bear a son in her old age. And now God's asking Abraham to walk this son Isaac up Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And as we read the narrative, we feel confused. God, why are you doing this? As we read the narrative, we empathize with Abraham. And we say, by God, what kind of emotional sorrow, pain, agony must he have been feeling as he walked his promised son up the mountain to his death? The story causes us to hurt with Abraham. Now, of course, as the story goes, Abraham lifts up his knife to get ready to sacrifice his only son. And an angel of the Lord tells Abraham, stop, look in the thicket. There's a ram caught. So Abraham saves. Isaac is spared and Abraham offers the ram caught in the thicket. And he says, God will provide. But some years later, God the father would walk his son up the same mountain. Only there would be no stopping the nails driven in his palms and in his feet. And as we empathize with Abraham, as he walks his son up the mountain to die, we realize later that we're actually empathizing with God. That the story's actually about the father heart of God. That we're supposed to feel. What we felt towards Abraham is actually intended to, to cause us to ponder what God felt as he walked his precious only son up Mount Moriah towards his death. And, and on your behalf, it's supposed to cause you to ponder. The story's actually about him. Father God ordained our redemption from creation past in Jesus. It's a beautiful solution to a problem that we made. But don't think for a moment that it didn't cost him something. The intention of it matters. Consider consider Jesus' words in Luke 15. He tells the story of a woman who lost her precious coin and searches for it frantically. Then he tells the story of a shepherd who's lost the sheep and leaves the 99 to find it. Then he tells the story of a father who has a prodigal son who takes his inheritance and squanders it and lives far away and far from home. Jesus is saying that this is what the heart of God is like. The heart of God is like a woman who's lost a precious coin to her. The heart of God is like a shepherd who's lost the sheep. The heart of God is like a father whose son has squandered his inheritance, spit in his face and left home. That's what the heart of God is like, Jesus says. As Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, the son returns home because he's run out of money and he's desperate. And he thinks, I'll be a servant in my father's house. But to his surprise, the father jumps off the porch, picks up his clothes and runs towards the son, embraces him. And Jesus says, this is what the heart of God is like. This is how God feels. This mission that we're on starts with God. It starts with God's heart. It's God's plan. It's God's redemptive narrative. It starts with the Father. As the Father. As the Father. Next, sent me. As the Father sent me. Luke 19.10 says, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The scriptures say that Jesus came that we may have life and have life abundantly. Jesus said that he brings truth and by knowing that truth, we would be set free. The scripture says that Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up the wounded. There's a particular scripture in Matthew 9 that I want to read to you this morning. I think it illustrates the heart of Jesus so well. Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. 
The scripture says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Consider who wrote this passage this morning. Matthew wrote this passage. Who has been called by Jesus? Matthew. Matthew is writing about the day that Jesus called him. What is Matthew's vocation? Matthew is a tax collector. Notoriously crooked in this day. Sitting at a tax booth. Jesus calls Matthew, a notoriously crooked tax collector, sitting at his tax booth and says, follow me. And Matthew follows Jesus to a house. And now Jesus is sitting with Matthew and Matthew's friends reclining, eating. So when the religious person says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who are they talking about? Well, they're talking about Matthew. Matthew is telling you about the day that Jesus called him from his tax collecting vocation. He is telling you that he sat at a table with Jesus. And religious people came in and said to Jesus, why would you ever sit with this sinner? Consider what Matthew must have been thinking in that moment. Will Jesus throw stones at me now? Now will Jesus deny me? They're right. After all, Jesus should not be spending time with people like me. Maybe Matthew thought, I'm ashamed, guilty. Maybe his eyes dropped. Maybe he felt unworthy. His mind was riddled with all of the deceit and deception that he had operated in. And for years and condemnation began to settle over him. And he thought, surely Jesus will abandon me now. Jesus responds to the religious. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came for sinners, not the healthy. Jesus' response to the Pharisees is, you don't understand the heart of God. And because you don't understand the heart of God, you can't understand the mission of God. The Pharisees had memorized large portions of the Old Testament, but they had missed the heart of it all. They were cold. Matthew writes years later of a time when Jesus called him a tax collector and defended him before the religious Jesus comes for Matthews. Lost coins like Matthew. Lost sheep like Matthew. Prodigal sons like Matthew. If you're wondering this morning if you belong in church, maybe you are an addict yourself. Maybe you've really messed things up. Maybe you've lied, stolen, and cheated. Maybe you're an adulterer. Maybe you're hooked to pornography and you live sexually immoral. And you wonder, do I belong in church? And I want to tell you this morning that you are the reason Jesus came. Welcome home, Matthew. Jesus is sent by the Father to reflect the Father. Shows us the Father. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus responds, Philip, how long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The way that Jesus feels about Matthew and acts towards Matthew is exactly the way that the Father feels towards Matthew and acts towards Matthew. Jesus says, I reflect the Father perfectly. I only say what I hear him say after all. My message is his message. The words that I utter come directly from the heart of God. My declaration is the heart of the Father's declaration. As the Father sent me, the Father sent me with a message, and the message, the words that fumble out of my mouth, they belong, they originate in the Father. 
Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. The Father has commissioned him with all the authority of heaven to heal the sick, to cast out devils, to raise the dead. As the Father sent me to redeem, to heal, to bind up, to offer forgiveness and mercy. Finally, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father sent me with authority, with a message, with a broken heart for lost people, with a mission, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. With a message, with authority, and with a broken heart for broken people. His words to the disciples here carry forth to future generations of believers, including you this morning. You are now called to participate in the mission of God. I want you to know that participating in the mission of God is the greatest privilege of your life, whether you know it or not. Joy, fulfillment, satisfaction are only found as you live in God and participate in God's mission. Leslie Newbegin, the the theologian I talked to you about last week, wrote, There is no participation with Christ without participation in his mission to the world. Meaning, when you walk with Jesus, you walk where Jesus walks. When you walk filled with the Holy Ghost, you follow his steps. And if you are walking with Jesus' hand in your hand and following the step of the Holy Spirit, you are on a mission. When you belong to Jesus, you become an official ambassador of Christ. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the nations. Jesus commanded you to go with all the authority of heaven. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the nations. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching to them. Obey all that the Father, all that I have taught you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are commissioned by the authority of heaven to go and carry on the mission. Second, participating in the mission of God is the greatest responsibility of your life. Second, participating in the mission of God is the greatest responsibility of your life. The greatest responsibility of your life is participating in the mission of God. God has placed you here in this region, in this hour, with purpose in mind. You are on mission. You are co-workers on your mission field. Your neighbors are your mission. Your mailman is your mission. Your Your family members are your mission. As the Father sent Jesus, He has sent you. You are commissioned today. Today you are commissioned. Listen to me for a moment. I despise that you have a destiny preaching that's happening in America today. Forgive me because I'm going to be harsh for a second. But I despise it. And let me tell you why I despise it. Because what it does when we teach young people, you have a destiny, you have a calling. What we're actually saying is God's called you to be significant and successful and to change the world. And then we get our into the heads of our young people that whenever they become significant and successful, then they can change the world. And they spend their entire lives saying, God, make me significant, make me special and make me successful so that I can change the world. If I'm significant one day, one day I'll be successful. One day I'll be special and then I'll change the world. And they think, I must make it in the music business, then I'll change the world. Or if I'm a great athlete, then I'll have a platform to change the world. Whenever I own my own business and I climb to the top of the corporate ladder, then I'll change the world, then I'll share the gospel. And the conclusion is that only the successful, special people really change things. And that is fundamentally untrue. (laughs) 
What if you become really successful in your business and you find that as you climb the corporate ladder, people are actually less likely to share their hearts with you? What if your coworkers, as you rise in power and prominence, what if your coworkers say, I start wearing a mask on you. If I impress him, then maybe I'll get a raise one day. And so they don't share with you the fact that they're going through divorce. They don't share with you the fact that they're struggling with depression. They don't share with you the fact that they're struggling with their finances because they want you to think that they're really successful so that they can be successful too. You can spend your entire life going, when I'm successful, then I'll be fruitful. But what if success actually hinders you? I'm not saying it will. I'm just saying that it's ignorant to think that way. You're on mission today, not tomorrow. He hasn't asked you to worry about tomorrow. He's asked you to worry about today. There are people in front of you today who you were called to impact. You are not sent, even as Jesus is sent, whenever you reach your out there destiny. You are not sent whenever you reach the status of special, successful, and significant. You are sent today. You are on mission today. Don't wait till tomorrow to start sharing your faith. Don't wait till tomorrow to start really loving people selflessly. Don't wait till tomorrow to invite people to your small group to start serving the poor and give your life away. Don't wait till tomorrow. You are sent today. Jesus said, even so, I send you. You do not need ordination papers to be commissioned. You need the breath of the Spirit. Jesus did not say, let me give you a title, then you'll be sent. He said, let me breathe on you the Holy Spirit. You will not stand before God on the last day and say, I know that you sent me to bring the gospel to the nations, but I felt unequipped. I wasn't equipped. By God, get equipped. Walk outside here today and find the connect group tables and look for Don Forshee's group. He will teach you. Get equipped. There are people here who will help you get equipped. Get on the altar team and sit under Miss Jackie and let her talk to you about what it means to pray. You'll, you'll get equipped. Get in a prayer group and listen to men and women cry out to God. You'll get equipped. You won't be able to stand in front of God one day and say, I wasn't equipped. God will say, by God, why didn't you get equipped? I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's not that we have no opportunity to partner with God in mission. You can serve on a ministry team here. You can join a small group here and disciple people and be discipled. You can lead a small group here. You can join an outreach. You can join Drew's outreach going to the prison. Or you can, you can join Miss Rosanna's outreach. She's ministering to the Hispanic community. You can, you can lead an outreach. You come tell me what outreach you want to lead. We'll, we will set you up. You can join, lead. You have, you have opportunity. You go to work every day, or maybe you don't, but you encounter people every day with broken hearts. We have a couple missions trips coming down the line. You can sign up and go on. There's opportunity. I don't think we lack opportunity. I think we lack brokenness. It's not that we don't partner with God because we're ill-equipped or we don't have opportunity. We don't partner with God because our hearts are not broken. And we've been taught that God saved us so that we can live happy, successful, isolated, airy lives. And what if God saved you because he loved you violently? What if your salvation was actually a bloody mess? A perfectly innocent and holy man brutally murdered on the cross of Calvary. That's not light and airy. 
And what if what God called you to participate in is about stepping in people's messes and bringing violent, aggressive gospel power and love to broken situations? What if God saved you because he loved you passionately and violently? And as he saved you, he said, now watch, I'm going to use you to bring people to me. What if he didn't save you just so that you could live a light and airy life, but he saved you to be on mission with the gospel and proclaim to the nations that Jesus, the perfect son of God, was brutally murdered on your behalf. Your sins are forgiven because the blood of Jesus was shed for you. What if when you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to mission? You can keep avoiding it or you can pick up the mantle and find Life as you give your life away. Jesus says, anyone that clings to his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. By God, are you losing your life today? Or have you succumbed to Western, selfish, all about me and my successful, significant destiny, live alone? Or do you carry a broken heart with conviction and with passion for the gospel of Jesus. Someone from the worship team, if you come for me, I'll get ready to close. Even as the Father sent me, so I send you. I will build my church. That's what I intend to do. Build my church. As the Father sends me, even so, I send you. The church is the solution of Jesus to this community. We gather here to worship and hear the word on Sundays and Monday through Saturday. We are on mission. We ought to be on mission. Our minds ought to be rolling about how can God use us to bring the gospel to this region. Your eyes ought to be open, looking for opportunity. Your heart ought to be broken and willing to serve. The church, the sent people of God, are the plan of God to bring the nations into his kingdom. I lay in bed recently thinking about leaders who love the word. I was thinking in particular about a few pastors who will forget more than I'll ever learn. Brilliant men. And I was thinking, how can men who are brilliant and committed to the word... Forgive me because I'm not going to tell you names. I'm just telling you the thoughts in my heart. Live lethargic lives and lead lethargic churches. Leonard Ravenhill, who I told you is my favorite preacher, was my favorite preacher before he passed. He, He would never refer to a seminary as a seminary. He always referred to it as a cemetery. He would never say seminary. He would always say cemetery. And isn't that strange? That the places in our nation that should be most committed to the word, to studying the word, who are committed to the linguistic study, who are committed to the archaeology and to the cultural context and the linguistic context and study all the literature and all the ins and outs. The people that are seemingly most in love with the word of God are oftentimes dead as doornails. Isn't that strange? And I was praying, God, I am committed to your word. I want to teach your word faithfully. But I don't want to dry up. And it seems to me that men and women who have gone down this path started on the right, right 
path, the right aim to honor God's glory and to live faithful to the scriptures and to teach it well. And that is the correct posture. This scripture is our ultimate authority. And my job is to expound upon it as accurately as I possibly can to give myself to its study. Of course, the scripture is the bread of life. Of course, it's our ultimate authority. It's vitally important. If we leave that conviction, we've lost everything. But the issue lies in this spiritual truth. If we do not keep our hearts broken, keep the fire of our soul kindled with prayer and fasting and the fasting and the testimony of God's work in previous days, our hearts will grow cold. And our cold hearts may still love the Bible. And our cold hearts may still like to sit down with a friend and talk about what we've learned or spar with someone who also knows the scriptures well. My cold heart may still enjoy standing up here and sharing the word of God with you and saying, look at my intellect and look what I've learned. My cold heart may still love the scripture, but my cold heart will not love God's mission. You are sent as Jesus was sent by his father whose heart longs to gather the nations. If you lose the longing of the father, you lose the mission. And here's the next truth, the spiritual maxim that you'll have to learn sooner or later. Your heart left in its natural state will grow cold. If you are not actively stirring the embers of your heart today, you are growing cold today. I've had to learn over the years what it means to kindle the flame. The church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, was re- they rebuked the false prophets. They called out false apostles with precise doctrine. And the scriptures said, but their hearts were cold. They had forsaken their first love. And so we want to, with doctrinal accuracy, cling to the scriptures just like Ephesus. To look in the face of false teaching and say, no, that is not what God has proclaimed. But unlike Ephesus, we want to keep our hearts hot. God, keep me broken before you. May my eyes never look upon the cross and move on without feeling something. Do you still feel something when you consider the cross? You have to learn to keep your heart broken and hot. And week in and week out, I try to share with you stories of men and women of old. Share with you stories of missionaries and men like praying John Hyde who prayed himself to death. And to share with you stories of great revivals because I'm trying to keep your heart hot. As I try to keep my heart hot. And week in and week out, I call you to the altar. You come to the altar. And I get in the altar myself because I find that as I live a life that's repetitively in the altar, my heart stays warm. Is your heart hot this morning? Is the corporate heart of our church hot this morning? If the corporate heart of our church is not broken, the collective heart, the the ethos, the atmosphere, our collective heart, if it is not broken, if it does not feel the longing for God, then we will never understand mission. We'll have to find the longing of God again. And the longing of God won't come through through just... Nice self-help teaching. The longing of God isn't found as we focused on living a light and airy life that never feels pain or sorrow. By God, we're not pursuing nirvana. The scriptural promise is not this state of ecstasy where you never feel pain again. You think Jesus never feel pain? He laid in the garden of Gethsemane with blood dripping from his pores because of the agony that he was under. The church is dead because the church feels no agony.
I want to ask you this morning to covenant with me as a body and as a local church. I want to ask you this morning to agree with me that we will not allow our corporate heart to grow cold. I want to ask you to partner with me in pursuing a red hot flame of passion filled with the Holy Ghost and filled with a conviction to bring the gospel to the nations and particularly to our region. I want to ask you to live hot. I want to ask you to stir my heart. When you find me discouraged, I want to ask you to breathe on the embers of my heart with scripture and with prayer. I want to ask you to remind me of testimonies. I want to ask you to burn. I want to get around you and feel my heart stirred to passion. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.